today on In Spirit and Truth with Pastor J.D. Farag. When you fear the Lord, you hate what the Lord hates. And the Lord hates evil. And when you have a heart after God's own heart and you fear God, you fear doing anything that would offend God or hurt the heart of God. You fear God in the sense that you fear sinning against Him, doing evil in His sight. You're listening to In Spirit and Truth, the radio ministry of Pastor J.D. Farag of Calvary Chapel, Kaneohe. Pastor J.D. is currently teaching through the book of Isaiah. Do your actions communicate a love for God? Or would you say that your actions are 100% selfish and for your own benefit? When your heart is fully given to God, your motivations change to reflect Him and not yourself. How wonderful. Today, in his message, Pastor J.D. calls you to a fully committed relationship to God. Now, be sure to stay with us after today's message to hear how you can get your own copy of today's broadcast. Subscribe to the In Spirit and Truth podcast or download the In Spirit and Truth iPhone or Android mobile app. But for now, here's Pastor J.D. in the book of Isaiah chapter 57 with today's edition of In Spirit and Truth. Molech was a giant iron statue with outstretched arms. And inside they had a furnace that they would set on fire. And they would put this thing in the valley right outside the city walls in Jerusalem. For those of you that have been to Israel with us, we point it out every time we're driving by. And they would take their children alive and basically abort them post-birth and sacrifice them by placing them on the arms of this iron statue, Molech, the fire would burn so hot it would burn them alive. And they refer to this valley as the Valley of Drums. And the reason they do that is because they would play the drums loud enough to cover up the cries of the children. I'm sorry that's graphic and unthinkable, but that's what happened, and that's what they were doing. And God's calling them out. This uh, inflaming yourselves with gods under every green tree. Let me just say, this refers to the unthinkable sexual immorality that was practiced in the worship of these false gods. Verse 6, among the smooth stones of the stream is your portion. They, they are your lot, even to them. You have poured a drink offering. You have offered a grain offering. Should I receive comfort in these? On a lofty and high mountain you have set your bed. Even there you went up to offer sacrifice. Also, behind the doors and their posts, you have set up your remembrance. For you have uncovered yourself to those other than me, and have gone up to them. You have enlarged your bed and made a covenant with them. You have loved their bed where you saw their nudity. Again, very graphic. It gets worse, verse 9. You went to the king with ointment and increased your perfumes. You set your messengers far off and even descended to Sheol. You are wearied, verse 10, in the length of your way, 
Yet you did not say there is no hope. You have found the life of your hand. Therefore, you were not grieved. You know what this is saying? Well, to me it's a textbook case of sin being pleasurable only for a season. But when the thrill is gone, there's still no repentance on their part. In other words, you are wearied in the length of your way. You've been doing this along the way. This is your way. And yet when you became weary of it and the thrill was gone, you did not say, I'm going to turn to the Lord. Instead, this is your life. You have found your life, and there's no godly sorrow. Therefore, you are not grieved. The Apostle Paul to the Corinthians says that it's a godly sorrow that leads to a genuine repentance. You know, there's two kinds of sorrow, right? There's a sorrow being caught, and there's a godly sorrow that leads to a change. The best illustration is that of being pulled over in traffic for exceeding the speed limit, which I want you to know I I never do. <laughs> Actually, I just don't get caught. But when you get pulled over, I'm sorry. What are you sorry for? I'm sorry that I got caught. <laughs> sorry that my radar detector wasn't plugged in. I don't know. I'm just sorry that I got caught. It's not a genuine sorrow. You're sorry that you got caught. No, a genuine godly sorrow is the sorrow that says, you know what, I need to change, I need to turn, I need to repent, and I need to change my driving habits. That's a true sorrow, a godly sorrow that leads to a genuine repentance. You know, uh, one more thing on this. You know when you get to the book of Revelation during the tribulation, and they go through all of these horrors that are just unspeakable, and they still don't repent. Is that hard for you to wrap your mind around? I know it is for me. And then how about the millennium? It's almost even worse. So Satan is bound in the bottomless pit for a thousand years, and it's like an enforced righteousness. And there are going to be people that are going to be able to have children in the millennium, and children will have children. And they will be given the choice at the end of the millennium, the 1,000 years. And can you believe that they will reject Jesus Christ after living 1,000 years in that state of righteousness with no devil to tempt them? But they're going to be given a choice. They have to be given a choice and they don't choose. Well, it goes back to Adam and Eve. They made the choice, right? Here's all of these trees. Eat freely of all of the trees of the garden, but of this one tree thou shalt not eat. Why not? See, if I'm God, which is why I'm not, it's why you're not either, I wouldn't have put that tree in there. I wouldn't have put it in there. I would just say, hey, eat from all the trees. All of them? Yeah. Is there any one that we shouldn't eat? Nope. Eat them all. Fine. We're good. Why did God put the tree in there? He knew, right? He knows the end from the beginning. He knew they were going to sin. Jesus was not plan B. That's blasphemy. It was all part of God's plan. He sees the end from the beginning. He knew they would. So why did he put the tree in there? 
to give them a choice. To choose Him, to serve Him out of love. Otherwise, there's no choice. So you choose Him. You choose to love Him, to serve Him. And they will make the choice at the end of the millennium. It is just too high for my understanding. Verse 11, And of whom have you been afraid or feared that you have lied and not remembered me, nor taken it to your heart? Is it not because, I, he's going to answer his own rhetorical question here, <laughs> is it not because I have held my peace from of old that you do not fear me? I will declare your righteousness and your works, for they will not profit you. Stay with me on this. This is a very important truth as it relates to not fearing God, thinking that, oh, because He's not meted out discipline immediately, I must have gotten away with it. No, God is long-suffering, and God is merciful. He gave the Amorites 400 years to repent. You see, what we do, and it's our sin nature, our Adamic sin nature, that misinterprets the mercy of God when God doesn't immediately respond or discipline or chastise. We think, hey, must be okay. I got away with it. Maybe it's no big deal. Because God has not done anything. He has held His peace. Oh, you, you, who oh boy, are you, are you in for a rude awakening? Is that why you don't fear God? What's the fear of the Lord? The proverb says it's to hate evil. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And by the way, on that, let me hasten to say, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. When you fear the Lord, you hate what the Lord hates. And the Lord hates evil. And when you have a heart after God's own heart, and you fear God, you fear doing anything that would offend God or hurt the heart of God. You fear God in the sense that you fear sinning against Him, doing evil in His sight. That's to hate evil. That's the fear of the Lord. When you cry out, verse 13, let your collection of idols deliver you. I love it when God does that. Oh, you love these gods, you worship these gods, you serve these gods, you sacrifice your children to these gods, and let them deliver you. Where are they when you need them? Oh, that's right, they're not there. Because they're not gods. And not only that, <laughs> the wind will carry them all away. A breath will take them. Huh, I wonder whose breath? No, God's like, oh, 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 you're trusting in that? Well, that's your God? <laughs> Watch this. Poof. Where's your God now? I know that's too far, but you get the point. But he who puts his trust in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain 
And one shall say, verse 14, heap it up, heap it up, prepare the way, take the stumbling block out of the way of my people. This carries with it the idea of prepare the way, build up the road so that people can have access to me. There it is again. I don't want anything keeping people from coming to me. I don't want any hindrance, any stumbling block. Build up the road so they can come. Build it up, build it up, heap it up, heap it up. Prepare the way. Right now they can't get to me. Build it up. Remove the hindrance, remove the stumbling block out of the way of my people. Again, I want them to have unfettered access to me. Now verse 15 is interesting. For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. What? Do you see what I see? Do you see a paradox here? So let me see if I got this straight. God, who is high and lofty, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, is the same God who's close to the humble and the contrite. Do you see the paradox here? High and holy and inhabits eternity and and yet here I am, humble and lowly and contrite, and I have unfettered access to Him. Yeah, not only do you have unfettered access to Him, you in particular are the one that He is the closest to. I think about the sweet psalmist of Israel, David, would pen those words by the Holy Spirit that you are close to those who are broken and contrite, those who are humble in spirit. You ever think of it like this, that God Himself is humble? Jesus was God incarnate, right? Do you, do you see Him that way? Please, please, please do not make meek synonymous with weak. He was meek. He was meek. He was humble. Why else do you think children would be so attracted to Him? He must have had His countenance, His disposition, His demeanor was so inviting, not intimidating. There was just something about Him, His humility, that was so inviting that children would want to flock to Him. Remember when He rebuked the disciples? He said, don't forbid the children from coming to Me, for such is the kingdom of heaven made up of these. I mean, just that alone, the fact that children would flock to Him, that, that, that should tell us a lot. I mean, children don't flock to me. They run from me. <laughs> you know, I guess I'm scary, especially the little ones. You know, I try to, oh, and they start crying. I think, wow, wow, really? Is it not true 
that he resists the proud? The proud he knows from afar off. You know, we, again, that's one of those verses in the Proverbs where we just kind of read past it. And yeah, you know, he opposes the proud, James says, but gives grace to the humble. He knows the proud from afar off. And we just read it and we move on to the next one. I want you to picture this with me. Use your God-given imagination. He knows the, the proud from afar off. It's like this. Get away from me. Get far away from me. I don't know you. I don't want to be around you. Get away. I cannot. I'm humble. And I cannot be with you close in proximity to you if you're proud. I resist you. I rebuke you. I want nothing to do with you. Get away from me. That's how he sees the proud. Well, verse 16, for I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. For the Spirit, this is interesting, would fail before me and the souls which I have made. In other words, if I was always angry with you and gave full vent to my anger, you wouldn't be able to handle it. You would just be destroyed. (laughs) You would just melt in my presence. You wouldn't be able to take it. For the iniquity, verse 17, of his covetousness, I was angry and struck him. I hid and was angry, and he went on backsliding in the way of his heart. I have seen his ways. By the way, do you notice that? Throughout, you get the impression God sees everything. You know why? Because he does. (laughs) I have seen his ways. I see everything he does. I see his backsliding heart. I see his sin. I see his iniquity. I see his covetousness. And now what am I going to do about it? Oh, I crush him. No. I will heal him. Wow. I will also lead him. Wow. And that's not all. And restore comforts to him and to his mourners. And that's not all. Verse 19, I create the fruit of the lips, peace, peace to him who is far off, And to him who is near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. Where I come from, they call that undeserved. That's the mercy of God. I don't know if it's possible to overstate how powerful of a picture this paints of the mercy of God. You deserve to be crushed. You deserve hell. But I'm going to show you mercy. I'm going to heal you. I'm going to comfort you. I'm going to lead you. I'm going to forgive you. But, and I wish there wasn't a verse 20 and 21 at the end of the chapter, but there is, and there needs to be. But the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Again, it's that choice. Here God extends His mercy that endures forever. He's a merciful God. He's, I will heal you. I will be merciful to you. And 
you still reject me. There is no peace for you. You remain in your wickedness. Here I'm offering you grace and mercy. Now you understand, and I, it's sadly become kind of cliche, I guess. But grace is God giving you what you don't deserve, and mercy is God not giving you what you do deserve. I'll take both. Grace and mercy. It's the grace and the mercy of God. And notice one last thing, and we'll close. Peace, peace to him who is far off and to him who is near. Reminds me of what James says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. He will never force himself on you. The choice is yours. The onus is on you to choose him, to draw near to him. And when we draw near to him, he in turn draws near to us. The backslidden, those who are far from him, he has mercy. Come back. Come back. Build up the way, prepare the road, remove the stumbling block. I want you to come. I want you to come. Yeah, I know this or that or they kept you from me, but no longer. They're out. I want you here. Come to me. Come to me. I want you to worship me. I want you to pray to me. And I want you to be healed by me. Come. Come. I have mercy for you. Okay, I said one last thing, but this will be the last, last thing. Very important. And this is the Holy Spirit. The enemy has been met with a measure of success in getting us to believe and be deceived that God is waiting to give us a licking. You know what I'm saying? I mean, and the whole sole goal of the enemy in doing that is to distance us from the Lord. So we're far from Him. See, once we come to Christ, He has to shift His strategy. See, before we come to Christ, He does everything He can to keep us from coming to Christ. Then once we get saved and we come to Christ, now He shifts His strategy and His tactics, and now what He wants to do now that we're saved and we've come to Christ, He wants to distance us from the Lord. How's He going to do that? By getting us to believe that God is angry with us. God's not waiting to beat us. He's waiting to heal us and show us mercy. He's not mad at us. He took all of His anger, all of His wrath. He put it on His only begotten Son on that cross at Calvary. And that's why there is therefore now no condemnation, no guilt for those that are in Christ Jesus. It's all been taken care of. All that He has to offer us is mercy if we would just but come. Father in heaven, thank You so much. Lord, we're, we're so grateful to You. We, we got a snapshot, really, in these two chapters of who You are and how You are and how merciful You are and how forgiving and loving You are, long-suffering. Lord, thank You. Thank You for this. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Thanks for joining us for today's edition of In Spirit and Truth with Pastor J.D. We hope you continue to be encouraged as you learn some good things from the book of Isaiah. Did you realize that there are 39 chapters in Isaiah that address judgment and 27 chapters that point to God's salvation? How fascinating that this book relates to 39 books of the Old Testament, much about judgment of sin, and 27 books of the New Testament, pointing to Jesus as God's salvation for the world. Isaiah is yet another example of how God interweaves the old with the new, and how prophecies from old point to fulfillment of that later. Are you seeing the connections that God has written into these pages of Isaiah? If you're wanting to hear this message again or more like it, you can find them at calvarychapelkaneohe.com. While you're there, you can learn more about the church this ministry is supported by, Calvary Chapel Kaneohe. If you're not already plugged into a local church, we invite you to be part of our church family. If you're in or near the Kaneohe area, we'd love for you to come visit us on Sundays and Thursdays for a time of worship, fellowship, and in-depth Bible study with Pastor J.D. You can find service times and directions on our website. Again, that's calvarychapelkaneohe.com. We're so glad you tuned in today to learn from the book of Isaiah. We look forward to the next edition with Pastor J.D. and the things that God has put on his heart to share from this prophetic book. Thanks again for listening today to In Spirit and Truth.